In Romans chapter 3, we are finally out of the section, basically from the second half of chapter 1 and the whole chapter 2 of Romans. Paul's been laying out the different groups of people that we come into contact with. And it was the different groups of people that were in the Roman church. Uh, there were those that were in the church, um, probably that had just come off the streets to hear what um, they were talking about, to hear about this Jesus, that were living in sin. People that were in blatant, what we would call obvious sin. You know, the ones that were murderers, the ones that were adulterers, the ones that were committing all the things that, uh, unfortunately, we get to the point where we're like, well, we were way better than that. We don't do that anymore. And so if we're not careful, we become prideful and we don't uh, witness to people like that because we've forgotten that God saved us from those same things. Um, and then there's the group that, um, so that's the group that was, you know, born into a family that didn't have a church on Sunday as a regular thing. That's the family that wasn't uh, born into the nation of Israel that had the law and the testimony. These are people that, that have no idea what God expects of them as his creation. And then there's a second group that we would call, I would call the moralist. The group of people that they don't cuss, they don't chew, they don't go with girls that do. Um, they do nice things for people. Um, they, they're the, the guy down the street that will come over and mow your lawn if you get surgery. Um, but the good moralist guy that will do good things for you and doesn't commit what we would consider obvious sins, that though they are moral, though they are without what we would call obvious sin, they still have the sin of not following Christ. They don't have a relationship with Jesus, which is the only thing that can save anybody from the wrath of God on those that we all have sin. Even if they're not obvious sin, sin is sin. You know, Jesus said what? He said, if, if you hate your brother without cause, or if he says, if you're even angry at someone, then you've already committed murder in your heart. And so the law isn't just on these obvious outward things, it's on the heart. And the only thing that can save us is Jesus Christ, his blood applied to our lives, his blood atoning for our sin. And so there's that second group that they're very upright, clean, what we would consider moral people, but without Christ, they have no hope of salvation. And so there's that second group. And he says, you, you who don't do all the things that the obvious pagans do, the obvious sinners do, who are you to judge? The law is applied to not only you, but also them. And then there's this third group, the Hebrews. They're the ones that were given the testimony of God. They, they were given the Ten Commandments. They were given, the, you know, this is what it takes to be right with God. And he says to them, uh, if you consider yourself a Jew and you've gone through the exercise of being circumcised to prove that you're a child of God and yet your heart isn't changed and you don't obey God's commands, then that circumcision doesn't mean anything. And I kind of made, made the application last week that we who are Christians, maybe we've been baptized, but if we don't obey the commands of God, if we don't at least do what what we do know about the Lord, we may not have it all down, but if we don't obey the things that we do know about God, then we may as well, baptism doesn't mean anything. It doesn't save us. And so we who are supposed to know better, if we don't do what God has shown us we should do, then we're no better off. We have sin too. So all of these three groups, he's basically leveled the playing field that there's nobody that's privileged. God doesn't judge with partiality. He doesn't play favorites. All have sinned, and so all need Jesus. 
And that's the point that he's made. So now that the wrath of God has revealed against all ungodliness or unrighteousness, Paul turns the corner because he's just spent the last part of chapter 2 saying that the Jew, the person that's been given the testimony of God, the person that's been born into the nation that's been specifically chosen by God to reveal himself to them so that he can reveal himself to the world, he says to them, you know, basically, your circumcision, your being born a Jew, it really doesn't gain you anything if you don't have a heart that's willing to obey God and the commands he's given you. And so Paul's going to ask some questions that he thinks people might have in their minds. You ever tell somebody something and, and they immediately, they have some, some problems with what you just told them. They're like, well, what about this? Well, what about that? And so Paul's kind of playing, for lack of a better term, the devil's advocate. He's, he's going to ask some questions that they might have in their mind. So hopefully, if they did have these questions, he can answer them. So he's told them, it doesn't mean anything to be a Jew if you don't follow the law. If you don't follow what you say you believe, then you may as well not claim to be that. And, and so he's assuming that there's a group in verse 1 of chapter 3 that are going to say, well, okay, so if it means nothing to be born into the nation of the Hebrews, the Israelites, he says, verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of the circumcision, the group that's been called out by God. What, is it, what's, what does it benefit us to be chosen by God if it doesn't really mean anything? And he says this in verse 2. He says, here's the benefit. Much in every way you have been benefited, chiefly or primarily because to them, to the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. The word of God was given to them to reveal to them that they could have a relationship with God, but they have to go about it His way. Here's the way that God is to be worshipped. We can't just worship Him in any way that we like. And so because He says, you've been benefited in every way because you've been given first and foremost before anyone else, God revealed Himself to you. And so I love this because you may not know this, but God's Word was given to them they wrote it down, and then they would make copies of it and distribute it to different places. But they didn't make a Xerox copy like we do. They didn't have that. They didn't even have the, the printing press that got invented in the Industrial Revolution when Bibles became widely you know, translated and, and given to other places. What they had was they had people that would sit down and they would write out by hand their own copy of the Bible. They didn't have all of this. They had the first five books, the law. They had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so with those five books, they were to make copies of it so that others would have it. If you only have one copy, then not many people can read it, right? And we, know, we all know how people are at sharing. We, we don't share well. You know, it's something that we were supposed to learn early, but we, st we struggle with it, right? So it's nice if we can have one at least per town. And so they started making copies of it. Except they didn't have a Xerox. So they had to have people write it down. But the way that they did that was they would have a man who was paid to make copies of the scripture. But I don't know about you guys, but I always have people go, well, you trust the Bible. You say that it's the written word of God. 
Well, what about all the people that made copies of it? You know, people, they, they have a tendency to make errors. How do you deal with that? Well, what they did was they had this group of people that would copy down the scriptures, but they didn't copy them word for word. They didn't copy them uh, idea by idea. They copied them letter by letter. And they would take their pen and they would write each letter. And when they would do that, remember we've talked before about the different Bibles and the book, books in the Bible, they weren't written in pages like you and I have in chapters and verses. They were written, say you have the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters. They would write it out on a scroll. And so you wouldn't have just one book or one chapter. You'd have the whole book on one scroll. And so if the person copying it did a letter and they messed it up, they did not allow for you to strike it through or to erase it. You had to basically start all over. And if you got 66 chapters, wow. So you're paying meticulous time and effort into every copy. And the other thing they would do is that every time the, word, the name of God, Elohim, we see that in Genesis, where he says, let us make God in our, or make man in our image. You know, it's, it's the, the triune Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Every time they wrote down the name of God, they would bathe, they would change clothes, they would even wash their pen, it was like a quill, and then they would dip it into a new container of ink. Because they, they saw God's name as holy. And so they did everything they could to keep his name holy. And so here's what would happen. The guy's writing down the book of Isaiah. I'm using Isaiah because it's a long book. And when he gets to the end of the very end of the book, and he makes one little mistake, you know what he has to do? He has to tear the thing up and burn it. So they painstakingly kept the word of God as pure as any man could, so that it would be exactly what God had spoken to their nation. So we have that, we're benefited by them being blessed and, and revealed, God revealing himself to them. And they kept the word so well that when just, I guess within the last 50 years, they found a copy of Isaiah. And it was one of the most early copies. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Look it up. And if you Google the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a copy of the book of Isaiah. And it was in this cave in a place called Qumran. A shepherd was out there one day and he found this cave and he was throwing rocks in it, uh, just like Joseph was doing this morning. You know, he saw a bird in the tree and he was throwing a, a rocket at this bird. He was trying to kill it. That's what boys do, right? We see something alive, we try to kill it. But <laughs> this shepherd boy was out there and he was watching his sheep and his goats and he saw this cave. And up in the cave was this, this big hole. So, of course, he's like, I wonder if I can throw a rock in there. I think that was when basketball was actually invented. You know, maybe I'm wrong. But he threw a rock up in there, and he was throwing rocks up in there, and he heard a, a crash, a break. Well, that makes sense, right? You see, I don't know if you guys seen the new commercial where the boys are playing baseball out in the front yard, and the mom's actually hoping that they'll hit the windows. So they can call the, the company that sells the new glass. You know, like, hey, we have to call. Who is it? Oh, I don't remember. Anyway. He throws the, the rock into the cave and he hears a crash. He hears a break. Of course, he's sitting there going, oh no, I broke a window. You know, he, well, in there, they, they sent somebody up there and in there they found these clay vessels and they opened them up and in there was a scroll of the book of Isaiah. So that's the earliest manuscript we have of the Bible. Just because some guy was throwing rocks. Praise the Lord for boys to throw rocks. 
You know, I, I think sometimes we think, stop throwing rocks, but sometimes they might find a scroll. I, I don't know. So anyway, they find this scroll, they unroll it, and what they find is that this earliest manuscript of any human writing that we have, closest to the known source, is the book of Isaiah, and they compared it to what we have today of the book of Isaiah, and there wasn't any of the ideas changed at all. There was a couple of spaces, there was a couple of minute differences in the way a letter, a word was spelled, but other than that, it was the same exact thing. So to them was given the word of God, the oracles, the very revealing of God to these people, the descendants of Abraham. So that's the benefit. They get to represent the God who created the heavens and the earth to the world through them just basically receiving what he gave them and making copies of it. And so that's the benefit. We oftentimes think, God, I want you to use me in a mighty way. And we're looking to go to some mission field and, and build homes for orphans. And no doubt, God uses that. And that is a huge blessing. But sometimes I think we overlook the main thing that God has given you and I. Well, I don't know much. Yeah, but you know more than the guy you sit next to at work. Well, I, don't, I can't quote scripture. No, but you know what it means when you read it. So your testimony, your witness to the world, you think, well, what does it benefit me then? Well, you know God. You know him personally. You've been given his word. You, care, you have the opportunity to carry it with you. And so when you speak to somebody, you don't have to come up with anything new. It's written down. He's already revealed himself to you through his written word. You buying somebody a Bible and giving it to them is a, is a blessing to the world. And they might not even read it for 10 years. Somebody gave me a Bible and it sat on my desk for at least 10 years before I ever started reading, revealing God revealing his mystery to me. And as I read it, it changed my life. And so the people of Israel, they've been given the word of God and they have the ability to hand it to somebody else and make that difference. So then Paul asks another question. He says, but what if some did not believe? What if the people of God, the Israelites, what if some of them didn't believe? Will their unbelief make God's faithfulness without effect? And this is the question that comes up. You ever invited someone to church or told them that you're a Christian and they go, well, so-and-so says they're a Christian and, and their life looks no different than mine. So they basically equate that person's disobedience to the Lord and they go, well, if that person that claims to be a Christian is a complete hypocrite, then that to me tells me God's, he's not real. But Paul's question here is, is if some people by their unbelief show their unbelief in their actions, does that mean that God's not faithful and he's not true? And the answer is no. That doesn't mean anything about God. That just means that there's another person that says they're one thing and, and does another. And so what he says there is he says in verse four, he answers the question, he says, Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar as it is written. And I posted a post on Facebook this week where basically Charles Spurgeon was, was a preacher back in the day. He's no longer alive, but he said, if every man on the earth agreed and they said that God was not true and they, they said that something that was in the Bible was not true, would that mean that God was not true? And his answer was no. God's word will never fail. It will always be true. And though every man in the whole world denied the trustworthiness of it, it doesn't change the fact that it is true. 
And I love that because sometimes we start to doubt. We start to have doubts. We, maybe, maybe you've been walking with the Lord just for a little bit and somebody that claims to be a Christian that's even been a blessing to you fails in some way or falls into sin. That doesn't mean that God's not true. Matter of fact, it actually proves that God is true. That if we're not careful, we will fall to the temptation of sin. But it also proves that, that God is holy and that none of us can live up to his standard. So we constantly have to live a lifestyle of repentance. Coming back to him and saying, Lord, I failed again. But your word says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if I will confess my sin, that the blood of Jesus covers it and cleanses me of all unrighteousness, that I can come back to you. You're not going to push me away and cast me out. But I do need to repent. Forsake my sin. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, is to hate all evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's where it starts. And so the Lord is constantly purging your and I's life of sin. And 1 John also says that if you say that you have no sin, that you're a liar and that the truth is not in you. Because if you follow Christ, you should be able to admit, I failed again. But what does sin do? It deceives us. It entraps us. It, it starts to blind us to our own failure. And if we're not willing to repent, pride comes in and we get hardened to it. And the Lord is always calling out to us, repent, come back to me. I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. But we see that many times because someone or some person or some leader or some person that's a pastor fails or they fall into sin or they walk into sin. That doesn't mean that God's not true. That just means that that person needs to come back to the Lord. And so he says there, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. And then he says, as it is written, and he quotes there in uh, verse four, he quotes actually from, um, from Psalm 51, where David is repenting of his sin. He says, you know, God, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. You know, he, he says it's written that you may be justified. When God judges you and I, when he judges the unbeliever that does not, is not covered in the blood of Christ by faith, when he judges the whole world, he will be just. And he will be justified in the way that he judges. He's a good judge. He judges sin and he deals with those who have come to him in repentance through Jesus Christ. Both of them, he judges based on the same uh, line of morality, the same line of his, his rules. But then he poses another question in verse five. He says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, then what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And then he says, and in my version it says, I speak as a man. So what he's questioning here, and at the same time Paul himself is not questioning this, but he's, he's expecting that there's somebody in the crowd going, well, wait a minute, if my unrighteousness or my failure actually shows the grace of God to the world, then why not just continue in sin? Because that proves how loving and graceful God is. When I sin, it actually brings glory to God because God is abounding in love and he shows mercy. And then Paul answers, he says, certainly not. Don't go there. Don't go to the end of that idea or that argument. He says, certainly not. 
For then, how will God judge the world? He'll be completely just. For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also judged as a sinner? Why would God judge me as a sinner if, if me sinning and then being forgiven shows his goodness to the world? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Anybody who says, you know what, I'm just going to continue in sin to the glory of God. Paul says their condemnation, their separation from God, it will be just. They'll deserve it because that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is not to leave us trapped in sin, but to deliver us from sin, to deliver us from the power of sin. If you continue to live your life entrapped and sold to sin under its rule, then that's not God's will for your life. God's will for your life is that you'd be sanctified. That's just a fancy word that means cleansed and delivered from sin, redeemed out of it. And then he says there, what then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And so he comes back around. He's, he's kind of dealt with a couple of these people's questions. And if you ever have questions, people that come to you and say, well, what if I just do this? Won't God forgive me? Or whatever the question might be. Many times Paul deals with those questions, especially in the book of Romans. He keeps, remember, he can't go to them. And so he's not having an open mic discussion with them like we could right now if we wanted to. And say, hey, what kind of questions you got for me? What Paul's doing is he's writing to them all the things that he wishes he could go to them and tell them. He recognizes, if I go and build relationships with these people, I'm more likely to answer their questions and them believe me because they know me. But since I can't go, I'm going to write them this letter. And then he says to them, he says, Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. Jews, Greeks, believers, unbelievers, we're all under sin. And God is continually trying to cleanse us of that. So what he says there, we are all under sin. And in verse 9, that, those words there, under sin, means that we're sold under sin. We're sold into the slavery of it. Do you realize that when we sin, sin is pleasurable for a season, by the way. The Bible teaches that. Sin is pleasurable for a season. But the problem is, is that though we choose to do it the first time, the next time, we don't have to choose because now we're enslaved to it. We're, we're given over to its power. Um, we're under the rule of it. We're under the dominion of it. So many people come and they, they say, well, I don't want to you know, give my life to Jesus because then I'm not my own person anymore. I lost my identity. Now I have to serve somebody. Well, whether you're serving Jesus or not, if you're not serving Jesus, you will serve something else. You'll serve sin. You'll serve your pleasures. You'll serve your appetites. And what the Lord wants to do is he wants to take you and he wants to free you from all those things that enslave you, whether it's an appetite, whether you really like to eat. Eating's not a bad thing, but if you are under the appetite of it and it makes you do things that you don't want to do, whether it makes you overeat, that, that becomes sin. 
If you um, are enslaved to video games, I'm just throwing something out there. If you're addicted to that, there are many people that are addicted to playing video games. They can't put it down. They, they crave it. It rules over them. For me, it used to be, this was before, uh, uh, what's the DVD thing? You can, you can, uh, um, where you can, they used to mail them to you, but now it's like Netflix, Netflix. Netflix, you can go on there now and you can watch entire seasons of TV shows. Well, before that, I went to a college where there was actually this server you could log on to if you got the password, and it had every TV show you could ever want to watch. It had every uh, musical album that you could ever listen to. So I would download them. I'd find a TV show I liked, and I would watch it. And I, at first, I'd, I'd watch an episode, and I hadn't seen the show before. For me, it was the OC. I don't even want to admit that, but it was like this. It was a soap opera for teenagers. I was in. And I liked the characters, and so I, I started watching it. And, and then I was like so encapsulated by the characters, the storyline, I wanted to watch the next one. And I could, right at the click of a button. And then I would watch another one. Next thing you know, I was skipping class so I could watch this dumb TV show. You know, I was... It, it encapsulated me to the point where I was ruled by it. I was so into the show that I didn't want to do anything else. Human relationships, I was out. Going to class, I was out. Taking phone calls, I'm busy, you know. And, and anything in our life, whether it's a TV show, if that's your thing, whether it's food, whether it's a relationship, if it rules over you and it gets between you and God, it could be a job. It can be a person who lives in your home. If it gets between you and God, it can cause you and bring you to a place where it's a trap to you. It's sin. It's an idol. And so the Lord wants to free us from those things. But many times we're blind to them because they're the things we prayed for. And God gave us those things. But we can become sold under sin. And Paul says this here. He says, we've charged Jews and Greeks alike. Every person that's ever been created starts out life sold under sin. And then he says, as it is written. So anytime he says, as it is written, Paul's quoting the Old Testament. So he gets ready to quote these different Psalms. There's, you know, Psalm 14 and Psalm 5 and Psalm 140 and Psalm 10. And that's what he's going to quote here. And if it's in your Bible like it is in mine, it's all in italics. But what he's going to do is he's going to quote all these Psalms. But one of the commentators I read, his name's Warren Wearsby. He, he says, I envision this passage as kind of like an x-ray for the lost sinner, the person that's without Christ, that has no direction in their life. And so he quotes these, starting in verse 10, he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. They're liars. The poison of asps, an asp is like a, a poisonous, venomous snake. Their po the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. He says their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. And then he sums it all up in verse 18. He said, there is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Wherever sin exists, it's because there is no fear of God. Remember, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's what opens our eyes. I've been praying for myself and for the church as a whole, for you guys. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, I pray, I'll go read it so I don't misquote it. He says there in verse 15, he says, Therefore, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love, your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And this is his prayer for the church. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. His prayer was that God would open their eyes to the things that are going on behind the scenes. That Jesus, in his death, has already given us victory over sin. So he's opening our eyes so that we'll see the sin that is in our lives and that we'll forsake it. That he would give us revelation and understanding that his word would be that healing thing that we need to purge our lives of sin. And so Paul's given us this bleak understanding of humankind, mankind, individual men and women that do not know Christ. There's none righteous, no, not one. We have this phrase, we say, hey, that guy's a good guy. But in God's eyes, there's no one who is good. Jesus was approached by a man in the gospel that came up to him and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's the rich young ruler we know him as. And so Jesus said, well, you know what God's word says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, I've done all those things. And so Jesus didn't pick out, he didn't start listing all of them. Jesus knew men's hearts. And he, first of all, he said, why do you call me good? There is no one who is good except God. So that kind of echoes the same thing that Paul has quoted from Psalm 14. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. And I find this encouraging. It sounds funny that I would find that phrase, there's none who seeks after God. Why would I find that encouraging? Well, because if you're here today and you're seeking God in any way, if you know anybody that has a relationship with Jesus Christ, the fact that they are seeking God at all should be a revelation to you that it's not them seeking God, but they have the Holy Spirit. That they're seeking God because God is opening their eyes giving them understanding, convicting them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come, which is what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. So if you've ever struggled with, well, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm gonna be with God in heaven one day? You don't have to wonder. If you have any inkling at all to seek God, that's God who's put his Holy Spirit in you that desires righteousness, 
that desires better than you are. It, Jesus has already gotten the victory, but he's going to grow you. He, he wants to make you practically who you are already spiritually in Christ. What did God the Father speak from heaven when Jesus was, um, when he was baptized? He said, this is my son and whom I am well pleased. And then when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and the, the Father spoke as Jesus was glorified, he rose up and he was, his garments were whiter than any uh, dry cleaner could get them. And then Peter and John are standing there and Peter goes, oh man, we need to build some tabernacles. We need to worship on this hill. We need to never leave this place. And the Father spoke from heaven. He audibly, he said, uh, he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, stop talking. Listen to God. And I love that because God's revealing himself through his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God's like, Look at Jesus. And so if you are seeking God in any way, that's not because you're good or there's anything good in you, but that's because the Holy Spirit is in you. You can be assured if God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit, then that means that he's opened your eyes, that you're his, that if you have a, even a, the least bit of appetite for him, it's because he's given it to you. He's given you the faith to seek him. And it says there in verse 12, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. That word unprofitable there means uh, rotten fruit. I don't know if you guys have ever grown a garden or if you know somebody that has. There are times when you plant a plant, it grows up and it puts off fruit. But when you eat that fruit, it's rotten. It's nasty. And I can't explain why. But if you're growing a garden, it you're doing it so you can eat the fruit or the tomato or the, the vegetable. But some people used to grow fruit and they would be doing it to sell it, to make a livelihood. So if you grow a fruit and it's rotten, it's unprofitable. You can't sell it. You can't eat it. It's, it's basically pointless. And that's what God is saying. Those who are not walking with the Lord, they're producing fruit but it's unprofitable for the kingdom of God. Those who don't know the Lord, they're still sowing seed. It's seed of unrighteousness and they will reap after the kind they sow. They will reap rotten fruit. It will be unprofitable. What happens if you eat an, a rotten piece of fruit? It, it can make you sick. And, it, and sin travels and it spreads and it makes us sick. Sin is like the cancer of society. I absolutely hate that cancer exists, but I can't think of a better picture of what sin does to us spiritually. Sin is cancer to the soul. It's what kills us spiritually. And so we need to be aware of the fact that sin, unconfessed, unrepented of, causes death, just like cancer. And so he lays out this bleak picture of what sin is. And then he he points out what it looks like in a life. The, the people that are full of sin, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they practice deceit. They lie. Their throat is an open tomb. The poison of asps is under their lips. Poison also causes death. Their mouth is full of cursing and of bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They're murderers. Even if they're not murdering people, they're murdering people's character. 
Destruction and misery are in their ways. They're miserable. Anybody that's sold under sin, whether they put on a good game face or not, they're miserable, hopefully. That's God's mercy. I thank the Lord that he allows us to be miserable in our sin. That sin is only pleasurable for a season and then it becomes uncomfortable. But he says there in verse 17, the way of peace they have not known. They don't know peace because they don't know who is peace. They don't know the Prince of Peace. We often talk about love. We talk about joy. We talk about peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. But they're not just things. Love is a person. Joy is a person. Peace, it's Jesus. Patience. He, he not only is patient, but He is patience. Gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things are had in the person and in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We can only know peace because we've seen peace in Him. And so when it says there that there's none that seeks after God in verse 11, but there's many people that are seeking something because they're meditating, they're following these false religions, but there's none who seeks after God. And they say, well, well, there's many ways to lead to God. There's all these other religions. But the person that's meditating, spending time either humming or burning incense and praying before this idol on a pole, we don't see them many, but there's people in our very valley that worship that way. But they're not seeking God because that's not how God is sought. What are they seeking? Well, they're seeking peace of mind. They're seeking something to... Be like salve on their conscience because they've got a sin problem. They don't know how to deal with it. But you can't deal with it without coming to Jesus. You can't deal with it without having Jesus' blood to atone for your sin. You can't know peace until you've experienced peace. And you definitely can't tell people about peace until you've received peace through the grace of God. And so... It's all because there's no fear of God before their eyes. And then he says, now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The purpose of the law was not to prove to other people, hey, I'm righteous. What God's gonna say here in verse 20, he says, by the deeds of the law, by following the law to the very every jot and every tittle, every minute piece of it. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, by following the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what the law was supposed to do. It's supposed to reveal sin. The law is a, it's a spotlight. You know, if you ever shine a spotlight where there's no street lights, what does it reveal? It reveals everything that's out in front of you. When God's law is given to the Jews and it's given to the world, it reveals who we really are. When you shine God's law on your heart, as you look at those Psalms that we just read, the very bleak picture of humankind, that's what we are without Jesus. And so he says there that the law was supposed to reveal to us our sin. And so let's, let's close on this last section here in verse 21. He says, but now... And I hope that that's a relief. It's like filling up a balloon 
to the very brink of explosion. You ever air up your tires and one's like got way too much air in it and it looks like it's about to pop? And the Lord has revealed his wrath and what it's going to be revealed against. And it's like he's pumping this tire up to the point where it's about to explode. And you pump it up. I had a four-wheeler that had a, a tire that was really dry-rotted. And it had a lot of cracks in it. And so one tire was like one of these like real smooth ones. And the other one was a really knobby one. They weren't the same tire. You air this one up, and it sits about this high. You air this one up, and it sits about this high. So when you're riding it, it was like this, a little Honda 125. The tire always looked like it was about to blow up. It even had a little spot that was herniated, where like the, the tube would pop out of it. You're like, is it going to pop this time when I ride it? But that tire, it's pumped up. And what Paul has done is he pumped up this case of sin, this balloon that's just aired up so much that you can just tell it's about to pop. But then he, put, he, he doesn't put a pin in it. What he does is he unties the knot that relieves it, lets out the pressure until it's at a spot where it's okay again. And what I mean by that, in verse 21, he says, but now. We see human condition without someone to pay for the sin. But he says there, but now the righteousness of God that's apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God that can ha be had through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference, for all have sinned, verse 23, all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. It's like trying to reach the stars, you know, trying to shoot a rocket up there in space. You've heard the phrase, shoot for the stars at least, Shoot for the moon because at least then you can land among the stars. It's because the moon isn't nearly as far away as the stars. And many people are trying to grasp their way to God. That's what religion is. Trying to relink with the creator that we've been separated from. But the problem is, is that no matter who tries, no matter how good their spaceship, no whether they've got NASA or they've got you know, the people in Russia that have made Sputnik, no matter whether the kid in middle school that made his own rocket with a little fuel and he sets it off in the field, all of those rockets, no matter how fast, no matter how far they go, they're not going to reach it. They can't. Because the glory of God is unreachable. God's righteousness is unreachable by any of our human efforts. And so he says there, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But we can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. That's a fancy word that just means a payment that turns away wrath. Propitiation. It's what they used to do in order to deal with their sins before Jesus. They would kill an animal, they would take the blood and they would pour it on the mercy seat. Because under that mercy seat on the altar was the Ten Commandments, the rod of Aaron, and the manna, the bread that they were given in the wilderness. And all those things represented man's failure to obey God. The Ten Commandments, when Moses came off the mountain with them, first thing, they were already sinning. And they broke the commandments right away. Moses threw them down and broke them in his anger. And then the rod of Aaron represented them rejecting God's leadership because he gave leadership to Aaron. And they said, you know what? Who are you, Aaron, to lead us? Well, the only thing that Aaron was, the only reason that Aaron could lead them was because God told him to. 
God's authority was given to Aaron, but they rejected it. And then there's the manna, the bread from heaven that God gave them in the wilderness. And they go, what is it? It was bread from heaven. They even despised his provision. And so because of their sin of rejecting what God had for them, he had to atone for their sin to deal with it. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so they would pour that blood on the mercy seat, temporarily covering their sins and being made right with God until the day when Jesus would come to die, his blood being the perfect blood of a human being, the only one without sin, and that blood not just covering it temporarily, but washing the sin away permanently. So the word propitiation is the payment that they used to do from the blood of the bulls and goats. Now that payment has come through a person redeeming us, buying us back. We were sold to sin and God bought us back. He redeemed us. Kind of like those tickets that we redeem. We go to the arcade next week and we'll play all those games and we'll you know, spend all our money and we'll, we'll win like 100 tickets. And we go up to the counter and we, we give them to the person and they go, you got 100 tickets, you can get one of the prizes off this shelf. That's We're redeeming the tickets for something that we actually want. So that's what Jesus did for us. He redeems us. He gives his life in place for us. He says, okay, you've made this payment. You've shed your blood. What do you want? And Jesus, you know what he said? He said, I want them. I want them. Verse 25, whom God set forth as a payment by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, in other words, he knew ahead of time, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He didn't sweep our sin under the rug, but he paid for them on his own. And not only was he just, but he's also the one that justifies us. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you are holy and that as your children, you've called us out of the darkness into the light to be honest about our sin and our true sinful state without you. Thank you that when we were grasping in the darkness, that you shone your light on our hearts, revealed to us our need for you. And the fact that we seek you at all is proof that you've opened our eyes. And so Lord, because you've opened our eyes, help us not to think that we've now made it and that we're where we need to be, but to continually ask you, Lord, what else do you want to change? I know I still have sin. Lord, convict us of sin. Convict us that we can be righteous, that we are righteous in your sight and that you want to make us practically who we are spiritually already. And Father, help us not to you know, think that we're condemned, but every time that we fail, Lord, help us to be soft enough and true enough to be able to come back to you and say, Lord, I failed again. I know that this didn't surprise you, but it surprised me. Change me. Cleanse me. Wash me again. Make me white as snow. And I thank you that your blood is enough to do that. That it can not only give us grace, but also peace with you. 
Father, help us to live like we truly believe that even though we don't always feel that. And as we live that out, help us to experience the peace that passes all understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.